Well, we're starting a new series today as we start the new year with a very interesting topic. But I want to start right off the bat with some scripture. The Apostle Peter is a, says something that is both profound and often confused or confusing when you read it at first glance. Uh, Peter is an interesting character. He says a lot of things uh, in the Gospels. And uh, the stuff he says in his letters in the New Testament are very profound, but also very down to earth in what he communicates uh, in a powerful way. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, just listen to what Peter says. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Now, at first glance, you read that and you're like, man, that, looks, that sounds great. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge. Yeah, I can grow in knowledge all day long. But if you really break it down and start to think about it, as I read this, this scripture, I started to think about grow in grace. How is it possible to grow in grace? If grace is an unlimited gift from God, if grace has no cap, if honestly it's impossible to get more grace than God's already given, how is it then possible to grow in grace? To, to get, I mean, that's the implication. You grow in knowledge, you get more knowledge. How can you grow in grace? according to what Peter is trying to communicate in this verse. There's some who would say growing in grace means, well, the more you do for God, the more grace you get, the more he gives you. You're working to get more grace. But that's not obviously what he's saying here because that flies in the face of uh, a myriad of other scriptures. You can't work to receive any grace because grace doesn't come from our efforts. Rather, it comes from the work of Jesus his death and resurrection. Now maybe hear what Peter is saying when he says grow in grace. He's meaning grow spiritually once you are in grace. Grow in grace. Once you are in grace, grow. Don't be stagnant. Don't just sit there, but grow up a little bit. Don't just stay where you're at. Grow, mature. Uh, uh, grow beyond where you are now doesn't mean you instantly grow up. It just means start to grow a little bit. Start to mature a little bit. You can't get more grace. Grace is free. Paul says that in Romans chapter 5. Grace is a free gift of God. He gives it out. It cannot be earned by any one of us. To grow in grace. What's interesting about that phrase from 2 Peter is it almost mirrors what he says at the beginning of the book. You see, this verse, 2 Peter 3.18, it's the last verse of 2 Peter. But if you flip back to the very beginning of 2 Peter, not the first verse, that's where he says who he is. Hey, I'm Peter, I'm writing you. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So Tony, flip back to that chapter 3 verse. So there he says, grow in the grace and knowledge. Now go back to the chapter 1 verse. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, 
Jesus our Lord. You see, Peter does this. Paul does this all the time. It's a parallelism. It's matching. What begins the whole book ends the whole book. Grace growing. Grace growing. Not that we receive more, but that we are growing in it. May grace be multiplied. May more of it go out into the world. Jesus has given it all that there will ever be, which is an unlimited supply. May you grow while you're in it, and may other people receive it as you tell them about Jesus. Grace is multiplied through an increased understanding, as he says in this verse, grow in the, uh, may grace be multiplied in the knowledge. So as knowledge is increased, as understanding of the Lord is increased, there is a greater understanding of the grace. There is a greater understanding of our faith in grace, uh, of spiritual maturity in grace. Not that we receive more, but we're growing in our understanding of it. But growth happens because of an investment, because of a, a, a planting, to phrase it that way. You see, every growing thing must first be planted. Every growing thing must first be planted. You're not going to grow something in your garden if you didn't plant it first. Or if the tree didn't drop some seedlings and it plant there by itself. But it's not going to grow if it doesn't plant first. Paul says it that, that exact same way in Galatians chapter 6. He says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption or perversion or death. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So he's using a sowing and a reaping analogy here. Illustration. You sow to the Spirit. You do something spiritually for God and you sow it to the Spirit. You give it to the Spirit. What will grow will be something spiritual is how he's describing that. But if you sow something to your temporary world, to your own personal preference, something that will die in this world that you can't take with you to the next world, it will reap corruption. That means it will not last. It's temporary. It will only go so far. So what Paul's trying to emphasize in this verse, and Jesus emphasized in a couple of his teachings, is sow to the Spirit. So do something that will last on into eternity. Sow to the Spirit, something having great spiritual impact. And the Spirit, and, and from the Spirit, there will come something eternal. There's a concept of this in the spiritual life of the Christian. It's called spiritual disciplines. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Spiritual disciplines. Uh, there's a man named Richard Foster who literally wrote the book on spiritual disciplines. I have one of my copy in my office it is, uh, well, what's funny about it, it's, there's a cover of the book that says it's the 25th anniversary of the book. I bought it maybe 15 years ago. But if you open the dust cover, it says the 20th anniversary. So they just took the old version and put a new cover on it, uh, just as good marketers do. Uh, but you can find them now. I think it's like the 40th anniversary of it. But it's called Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. It's phenomenal. It will change your life as he walks through uh, uh, generally accepted spiritual disciplines in a very deep way. But spiritual disciplines are meant to be methods of spiritual developments for ourselves. Spiritual disciplines are meant to be methods of spiritual disciplines for us, for ourselves, to help us grow, as Paul says there, grow once we are in grace. It's to help us mature and, and become more like Christ. 
Because what spiritual disciplines do is they prepare us for the Lord's work. They get us ready for what God's going to do in us. In the same way, going back to Paul's analogy, uh, when you're uh, planting crops or, or planting something in your garden, you can prepare the soil, you can plant the seed, and you can water the seed. But you have to depend on the Lord to do the growing. Now, you can expect the growth because maybe you've planted stuff before and you say, I plant stuff and I water stuff and it grows. It just, that's just the way it works. But you can't make it grow. All you can do is, is help the environment of the seed to be prepared for growth. And that's what spiritual disciplines do. They prepare you, they prepare me for God's work, for God's movement. They prepare me for growth. They can get me ready. It's the equivalent of preparing the soil, planting the seed, watering the ground, and God brings the growth from that. Now, there are several general spiritual disciplines to start with, and the one we're going to look at today right off the bat for the Christian is one that is often glossed over, misunderstood, or just straight ignored. Um, We read right over it without focusing on it too in-depth. And that's the concept of meditation. Meditation. We hear that word sometimes, we think, oh, that's a new age deal. Like, let's not touch that meditation word. That's, a, that's weird, man. We're not going to go down that road. But as we're going to see, the idea of meditation far predates the concept of modern meditation and culture. We're going to begin in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now before we we continue on with this section here, Psalm 1, it's six verses talking about two different kinds of people. The first three verses talks about one type of person. Verses 4 and 5 talk about another type of person. And verse 6 defines who they are. It says that there's one person that's wicked and doesn't believe, but then the first three verses, verses 1 through 3, verse 6 tells us is what it calls a righteous person, someone who is righteous. Now, that word righteous, a lot of times in, in modern culture, we, we take that to mean you do something to earn righteousness. But the way Scripture uses that word is you don't earn righteousness. Righteousness is given to you. It doesn't mean living perfectly. For us as a Christian, righteousness was bought by Jesus, and it's given to anybody who believes. And so when it says this is the characteristics, these first three verses are characteristics of a righteous person, what is being said is is these are the characteristics of somebody who believes, of a believer. And so when it says this person is blessed, blessed is the man, the person, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked the influence of those who don't follow after the Lord. Nor someone who stands in the way of sinners, who who walks the way of people who don't want to follow God. Or sits in the seat of scoffers, or does the exact same things that mockers and scoffers and people who make fun of other people do. But instead, verse 2, this person's delight is in the law of the Lord. That's Scripture. And on his law, Scripture, he meditates day and night. And having meditated, verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. 
That word's important. I want you to remember that word prosper for something in just a minute. Uh, But this person delights in the law, delights in Scripture, and meditates on Scripture day and night. Meditates on it day and night. So according to Psalm 1-2, meditation is supposed to be a key part of anybody who's following the Lord. And he says there, meditates day and night. That doesn't mean meditating one time in the day, one time at night, we got it covered, day and night. The, the concept in uh, Old Testament Jewish thinking, in describing it this way, means all the time. All the time. God actually describes this in Deuteronomy 5 and 6, talking about you need to have my word before you all the time. He says, what you need to do is, it's as though you need to have it tied to your hat. You need to have it tied to your clothes. You need to have it on your doorpost. So you see it everywhere you go is what God is describing in Deuteronomy 5 and 6. It's the same thing here with the psalmist in Psalm 1. It needs to be constantly before you if you're following the Lord. You delight in it. It it encourages you. You want to have more of it. You're meditating on it day and night. It's constantly before your uh, mind. But biblical meditation, as it's presented there in Psalm 1, and as we're going to see in a sec in Joshua chapter 1, biblical meditation is focused attention that leads to action. In the definition of the Hebrew word, that's what it is. Focused attention that leads to action. You can't just focus on something and it not lead you to action and call that meditation. That's not meditation. That's just thinking about it a lot. But to use the biblical definition, it's focused attention that leads, it will lead you to act. You will focus on the scripture in an intense way, and it will lead you to do something. Now, the more modern idea of meditating is trying to empty your brain, clear out all the stuff, and and have a completely empty mind so you have stress-free and worry-free. But the biblical idea of meditation is the inverse. It's not an emptying, it's a filling. Fill yourself up with scripture. Fill yourself up with God's word and find a peace that you did not know before. It's, if you're filling yourself, you're better able to hear God's voice and you're better able to follow his direction. But when you fill yourself, you've got to fill yourself with the right thing. Fill yourself with the right thing. You see, because biblical meditation gives you clarity to hear from God and strength to follow him. It gives you clarity to hear from God and strength to follow him. And that is exactly why the enemy will throw everything he can at you to keep you from trying to hear and follow God. He will distract you. He will cause you to to remember stuff that you had long forgotten. He will give you uh, 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 conversations in your mind of next time I see that person, I'm going to say this and this and this and this. I'm going to prove that they are wrong about this, this, that, and the other thing. Because he doesn't want you to focus on God's word. Because the enemy knows what happens when people begin to focus on God's word. Things change. People change. Lives change in a demonstratively powerful way. And so if you ever attempt, as I'm going to challenge you at the end of this message, if you ever attempt to focus and meditate on God's word, he's going to throw the kitchen sink at you. Because distraction is one of the enemy's most effective strategies. And in today's modern time, he does it all. We have made it so easy for the enemy to distract us because we keep a tool of distraction in our pockets constantly before us. 
Not that cell phones are inherently bad. It's a tool. It can, be, it can be phenomenal to do great things. But it can also do great damage. Just like a kitchen knife can carve up your food so you can eat it better, so you can grow stronger, it can also kill you. It can do great damage if used improperly. But we allow the enemy to distract us in such an easy way that we don't even realize it at the time. See, the thing is, we've only been alive maybe a few years, maybe a few decades, maybe a couple handfuls of decades. Enemy's been at this for thousands of years. He's seen people just like you before. He knows how to tempt people just like you. He knows what buttons to push. He knows what pictures and images and words to throw in your mind to get you off track. So that you end up at the end of what you may call your time with the Lord. It's the beginning of the year. A lot of us try something we may have failed at last year. We try to get in God's word and we're trying. And we get, maybe this morning, you, you, you sat down with the word. You pulled out the word and you started reading. Or maybe you put the audio Bible on and it's reading to you the Bible plan. And you get, it gets done. You don't even hear anything that was just said because your mind was wandering, thinking about something else that was going on. Or is that just me? Anybody? Okay, that's just me. It's just the preacher. Okay. Uh, Made me feel so good there, y'all. Thank you. Uh, And uh, the enemy, he will lead us down this road of distraction. Now, that man I mentioned to you a minute ago, Richard Foster, who wrote that book about spiritual disciplines, he said this. He said, distraction is the primary spiritual problem in contemporary culture. Frankly, we, when we are perpetually distracted, We are unable to discern the voice of the Lord. When we are perpetually distracted, we're unable to discern the voice of the Lord. Enemy knows this. So he's going to do everything he can to distract us. C.S. Lewis said something very similar in Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional account trying to present spiritual truths. C.S. Lewis wrote this about a, a... uh, uh, a demon that's higher up in the organization of Satan writing to a demon who's out on the field tempting somebody. And, and in it, he says, if you can't tempt the man that you're tempting to sin, just make him busy so you can distract him. C.S. Lewis knew it. Richard Foster knew it. Jesus knew it. We get so easily distracted and led off the path that God would have us on. But what meditation does, biblical meditation, is the antidote for distraction because it brings us back from the brink of distraction and recalibrates us so we can focus on what God would have us to focus on. That doesn't mean it's easy. It's absolutely going to be difficult. It's going to be hard to not be distracted. But it takes practice just like anything else does. So turn to Joshua chapter 1 and let's take a first-hand look at this. Joshua chapter 1. If you're going to use a pew Bible, it's on page 178. Now, just to put this in a little context, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is about to be the new leader of Israel, the nation of Israel. But before him was a man named Moses. Moses was about the perfect picture in the minds of the Israelites of a leader. Moses showed up while the Israelites were in slavery 
And Moses listens to God, calls down all these plagues on Egypt, and Moses leads, the, he's the leader, leads the people out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea, brings manna from heaven to, to scatter the ground, quail to uh, give them the protein they need, water from a rock as Moses follows God's direction. And Moses is leading the people for 40 years, and the people are following. Now, if you've read... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The people didn't always follow willingly. They complained a whole lot. They whined a whole lot. Um, and uh, they had a lot of problems. Uh, Moses himself had a lot of problems. Just as the people constantly disobeyed, Moses disobeyed. He wasn't perfect by any stretch. But Moses led the people through something phenomenal. And then his assistant the whole way is this man Joshua. Joshua was in Egypt. Joshua was a slave, just like the other Israelites. And Joshua was Moses' assistant for 40 years. So Moses shows up and starts leading when he's 80. And Joshua becomes his assistant when he's 40. And they go together, and now it's 40 years later. Moses is 120. Joshua is 80. And Moses says to Joshua, God wants me to go up on this mountain. You just wait here for a little bit. So Moses goes up on the mountain, and when Moses gets to the top of the mountain, God tells Moses, you're going to die today. You're going to die today. But I want you to look out at this vast promised land that I'm going to give your people and see it before you die. And then on the mountain, Moses dies right there on the mountain at 120. But what's so incredible about this, we looked at this last year in in our Wednesday night Bible study, is God, and he doesn't do this for I don't think anybody else in Scripture. God takes Moses' body personally, and God himself buries Moses' body somewhere. It, doesn't, it says some, that nobody could find it. God personally buried Moses' body where nobody knew but God. God digs the grave. God puts Moses in the ground. God covers it. God buries Moses. And at the bottom of the mountain, just remember, Joshua's still down there waiting on Moses at the top. Joshua's at the bottom of the mountain. Moses is dead. God buries Moses. And then after burying Moses, God comes to Joshua. In verse 1 of Joshua 1, he says this, or it says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, immediately, we're going to look. God moves on to, to instruction. But also think for a second just about the impact of that on Joshua. Even if he would have been anticipating this moment, at some point now Moses is going to die, it's going to happen, it still hits him. I mean, he's been every single day with Moses for 40 years. And then God comes to him and says, Moses, your friend, my friend, Moses, is dead. And then he says to him, now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm going to give to them, the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. Now, just reading that, you know, you may not know a lot about Middle Eastern geography, but you got the River Euphrates, 
which is a famous river, Tigris and Euphrates. Garden of Eden was there. It's a very old river. Uh, he says it's going to go from there. Uh, it's going to go to the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. You're going to take the land of the Hittites. And I know you all know the ins and outs of the history of the Hittites, right? Well, let me just give you one sentence deal. The Hittites were in this day, in Joshua's day, the only world superpower that was there. Before the Hittites were the world superpower, there was Egypt. And I just mentioned a second ago what happened to Egypt. The plagues came and destroyed Egypt's economy. Then Egypt's army ran into the Red Sea and the water came down, destroying Egypt's military. So in just a handful of, of days, Egypt goes from being the number one superpower in the world to square one. And now the number one superpower in the world are the Hittites. And God says, you're going to go in there and you're going to unseat them. And it's not going to be any competition. You people who were slaves for hundreds of years and then you walked around for 40 years, you in all your military might, meaning zero, you're going to go in there and I'm going to give it to you. All you got to do is follow my direction and I'm going to give it to you. So he says, look at verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, I want you to, to notice something as we finish out this section just a sec. God is trying to encourage Joshua. Now, he didn't say that. He's not saying, Joshua, I'm going to encourage you. But you can infer it from how many times he tr we see encouraging words in these next few verses. He says, no one's going to stand before you. You can go from day one to the last day of your life and have zero opposition if you just follow me. The same spirit that was in Moses, I'm giving to you, Joshua. I will never leave you or forsake you. Talk about encouragement. It went from the depths of the beginning of the conversation, Moses is dead, and now God's saying, everything Moses had, you have and more. Look at verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now, this is a realization. I mean, Joshua has heard some of this before. Uh, he's heard be strong and courageous before in the book of Deuteronomy. He's told that phrase. But now God is telling him directly, Joshua, be strong and courageous because what's about to happen requires strength and courage. What's about to happen requires you to be strong and you to be courageous because you're going to lead the people in the land that I already promised that they're going to have. He says you're, you're going to cause the people to inherit the land. That phrasing is very important because what the Israelites are going to have to do, they're going to have to fight battle after battle after battle after battle. And God promised in the previous verse, you're going to win every single one of those. No one's going to stand before you. You're going to win all the battles. But in this verse, he says, you're going to inherit the land. Implication being, I'm handing it to you. I'm giving it to you. You don't really need to fight. You just need to show up, and it's yours. Just walk in the room, and I'm going to do the fighting, which is a promise God said back in the previous several books of the Old Testament. But he's telling it directly to Joshua right before it happens to, to remind him of this truth. Now, we often need reminding of God's truth because we get distracted. And so God tells Joshua, be, you need strength, you need courage because of what's coming. Verse 7, only 
Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now that phrase, good success, also means to act wisely wherever you go. So he says, be strong and courageous. He tells him again, be strong and very courageous. Being careful. So the phrasing here is also very important. Because he says, be strong and very courageous. And the idea with what comes next is, this is how you are strong and courageous. You can only be strong and very courageous in what's coming if you do what the scripture says. If you follow the word, that's how you find strength and courage. Follow the word. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left. And then you will have good then you will be able to act wisely everywhere you go. Just follow the word. You will have the strength and the courage. And if you have the strength and the courage, then you will inherit the land. So it's a process. Follow the word. But how? How can Moses follow the word? Verse 8. Or Joshua and the people followed the word. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Same phrase from Psalm 1. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. You will make your way prosperous. Again, that word prosperous or, uh, 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 from Psalm 1 again. Then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So look at the steps again. God tells Joshua, you're going to lead the people. But to lead the people, you need strength and courage because of what you're going to do. That you can only be strong and courageous when you follow Scripture. You can only follow Scripture if you know Scripture. You can only know Scripture if you meditate on it. You can only know scripture if you meditate on it. He says, it will forever be in your mouth because it's always in your mind. It's always in your heart. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If it's always in your mind, if it's always in your heart, it's going to come out of your mouth. It's going to come out of you. One way, as a parent, you know that about your kids. If they're thinking about one thing, if it's, maybe it's a certain kind of song or something, it's, if it's always in their mind, it's going to come out of their mouth. Or maybe it's going to come out of their thumbs as they're texting somebody. It's going to come out in some capacity. He says if it's always there, it's going to come out. So meditate on God's word. Meditate on what God puts there in his word. Meditate on it day and night. And only then you will be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You can only do it if you know it. You can only know it if you're meditating on it. Meditate on it. So you people are sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I've heard you say meditate a thousand times, preacher. What is it? You say, I've seen meditation in movies. I've seen it in a variety of other things. I see it in scripture. Meditate. You said a definition earlier, you know, focused attention leads to action. Okay, that's phenomenal. But how do we pull this out practically? Well, I'm going to explain it to you, but as I explain it to you, I want you to mull over one question as I explain it. Would you be willing to try, don't raise your hand, would you be willing to try biblical meditation for the next seven days? As I explain it to you, I want you to think about it. Would you be willing to try it for seven days? Just try it and see what happens. Just try it for seven days. And as I said earlier, 
if you do try it, you're going to find it incredibly difficult. I'm just going to preface you. It's going to be hard. Maybe you get good on day one. Day two, you're like, oh, I did good on day one. All I have to do is good on day two. I can just do a little bit. Day three comes and you're barely doing anything because the enemy knows how to distract us. You got to stick it out. You got to persevere. You got to stick with it. Are you willing to try biblical meditation for the next seven days? Because here it is. All right, you ready? This is what biblical meditation would look like. You find somewhere in Scripture to start reading, and you start reading. Anywhere. Now, don't do one of those. Jeremiah, what is it, 7, what did I do? 12. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil people of Israel. Okay, how can I use that today? Uh, Shiloh, I know somebody named Shiloh. Uh, uh, evil people, Israel, okay, what's he talking about? Uh, I'll just apply it to my life somehow. Don't be one of those flip through the Bible, pop your finger down type of deals. No. That's another way the enemy can get you. Have a plan. Be intentional. Everything in Scripture is on purpose. So our use of Scripture ought to be on purpose. Ought to be intentional as well. So find a place to start. Maybe you need to start in Psalm 1 like we looked at a little bit ago. When I, I, I started practicing this uh, earlier th- this week, the beginning of the year. Because I'm not going to challenge you to do something that I don't experiment with on myself first. I started in John, John chapter 1. Just And when you do this, biblical meditation, don't take a massive amount. Don't say, I'm going to do a chapter. I'm going to meditate on a chapter. No, because you're going to choke to death and spit it all up. You ever bite out? You ever see a kid put more in their mouth than they can eat, and all of it ends up coming up because you get frustrated? I'll just spit it out and go to bed. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Your eyes are going to be bigger than your stomach. Don't do that. Start with one verse, maybe two, max. Just start with one and get there. Like I did John 1.1. 1, 1. And, you, you and you don't read it like, okay, I've read this before. I got through it real quick. I just move on to something else. Meditate means focus on it. Focused attention. Imagine the context that somebody wrote that down in. Like for me, John chapter 1. John the apostle wrote this. John the Apostle, who was one of Jesus' friends, he spent day in and day out with Jesus for a couple years. He was quite possibly a cousin of Jesus. John saw Jesus with his own eyes crucified. John saw Jesus alive after death. John the Apostle writes down this gospel about Jesus, most likely after all of his other apostle friends have been killed for knowing Jesus. And he writes, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And you think, okay, his friend Jesus, he's saying, is God. The spoken word of God is the the, the physical manifestation of the spirit God. He's writing that down, and the power and the implications of all that. And as you go through, do that with whatever scripture you're doing. You're meditating on that scripture, and you're breathing in and breathing out that scripture, and, and, and allowing it to transform your concept of yourself in relation to Almighty God. Maybe you need to start with Psalm, or maybe you need to start with John, or maybe you need to start with James, or maybe you need to start with Hebrews. Maybe what you need to do is flip over to the table of context and begin to pray through, maybe not, maybe pray through the New Testament in your table of context. Like, I, I don't, 
I would wager to say, now I'm not going to speak for God in this, con- in, in this way, but I don't think the Lord is going to lead y'all to meditate on like Leviticus or Song of Solomon. Uh, if you're a teenage boy and the Lord's saying meditate on Song of Solomon, that's something else. Uh, maybe start with the New Testament and say, okay, where is the Lord leading me here? Maybe Philippians, you need to learn a little bit about joy. Maybe First Thessalonians, maybe you're getting distracted by some people around you. Maybe wherever the Lord leads you, start there and start with just a verse or two. Just start reading, okay, I need to meditate on this. And what you do with that then is, as we saw in Psalm and as we saw in Joshua chapter 1, you don't just take it in the morning like your vitamins and it's good for the day. Take it with you and do it throughout the day. And as you do it, what you will realize, maybe day two, three, four, you you begin to sense when you need a little more, (laughs) like you need a refresher. It's like you're thirsty again. Maybe you have it on on your distraction device, and you pull it up, and it's with you always. Maybe you actually take your physical Bible with you. Man, what a statement that would be, a conversation piece. And you read that verse again breathing it in, breathing it, trying to slow yourself down and actually pay attention to what you're reading. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. But you just focus on it and read it and allow it to roll through you. Tony Evans says it's like a cow chewing the cud. You chew on it, swallow it, bring it back. Chew on it, swallow it, bring it back. Chew on it, swallow it. And you continue that all throughout the day so that it's always before you. But again, like I've said many times so far in this message, you begin to do this, the enemy knows you're doing it. And he's going to start throwing stuff at you to mess you up. Because he can see the strategy. And he knows what happens when, when somebody begins to follow the Lord. When somebody begins to do something for God. Think about it like this. In Ezekiel chapter 37, God brought to life dry bones and changed the world. Imagine what he can do with a willing believer, ready to meditate on his word and have it impact everyone around him or her. Do this throughout the week. Day two, go on to the next verse. Maybe you, you do a couple verses that day. Like, in, in, like me this week, John chapter 1, verse 1, then John chapter 2. Uh, <clears throat> John chapter 1, verse 2 was... Um, and, and the word was in the beginning uh, with God and everything that has been made was made through him. But then John 1, 3 is like a rehash of John 2. Like, it's a shorter verse, but it's saying the same thing. Maybe then, okay, I'll do 3 and 4 because it's, it, God wants me to do just a little more. And focus maybe then on all four verses and have it impact you and mull it over and chew it over and take it with you throughout the day. And I, I can tell you from my personal experience, even just this past week, It will change your attitude. Stuff that would normally get you irritated may not get you as irritated because there will be more peace in you because you're chewing on the antidote to frustration and irritation and anxiety. But because you're doing that, Satan's going to send stuff that's extra frustrating, that's extra irritating. He's going to begin to put conversations in your mind. And it's in that moment you go, oh, man, Satan sure is sneaky. I need to get back in this. Okay, what's my verse? Okay, go to my verse. All right, there it is. Read it out. Maybe that's why you need a physical Bible for you this week so you're distraction-free in that moment. But however the Lord leads you, go that route. 
And you begin to pull it out. And I'm just saying, try it for these seven days. And at the end of seven days, see what happens when you come back next Sunday. See if you're different by next Sunday. Because I can guarantee it, you will be. And I'm not just making that mess up. I'm different because I've been doing this. You will be different if you do this. I saw a, uh, an analyzation, you know, it's the beginning of the year and people make all kinds of, res- uh, you know, New Year's resolutions and it was about exercise. Uh, this guy was doing, uh, was pitching his 90-day exercise program. You do this and you're going to gain strength, you're going to lose weight, you're going to be healthier, you won't need to take all that medicine, you do this. And the guy who was interviewing him said, well, in truth, if you did if you ate right and did any exercise program for 90 days, wouldn't you be healthier and better? If you just, you know, did it for 90 days, then wouldn't that change you? And the other guy had to admit, well, yeah, but buy my thing and do my thing. If you try this for seven days, I'm telling you, you will be different. You will be. Just try it. What's it going to hurt you? Just to try it and see what changes. Try it and see what happens. What could happen in seven days You could find more peace in seven days. You could be calmer in seven days. You could be a better friend in seven days. Better son, better daughter, better parent. Better follower of Christ. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. We're just going to make a little bit of progress. We want to be better tomorrow than we were today. Just try it. And see what happens. As I've said many times, it's an old song. It's always in my mind because it was on a kid's show that my two oldest kids would watch when they were little bitty. One and two years old. That's been a long time ago. From a great old show, I, I love the show. Like, I would still watch it today. It's called Word World. You go look it up. It'll change your life. But there's a song in the show trying to get this one guy to drink milk, and he doesn't want to drink milk. Try it, try it. You just might like it. Try it. Try it, try it. You just might like it. See what happens in these next seven days if you begin to, as you begin to meditate on Scripture, focus on Scripture, and see what God can do through you when you begin to practice this spiritual discipline. Now today, you might need help focusing. Does the idea of spiritual direction and peace seem like something maybe you've been searching for? Maybe today you need help, but you need help because you need Jesus. So maybe today what you need to do to start the year off is believe in Jesus, who is God's son. He came and died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you believe that, you're guaranteed heaven, guaranteed eternal life if you believe. So maybe that's where you are today. You need to believe in Jesus, accept his free gift of grace and eternal life, and see something change in your 2024 that wasn't in 2023. So do you need to believe in Jesus today, or do you need to try meditation today? Where are you at in your spiritual journey?